I want to start out with a question this, this evening. Have you ever been falsely accused? Have you ever been falsely accused? Well, that is exactly what happened to Anthony Hinton in 1988. The accusation, two counts of first-degree murder. The case against him was weak. Anthony had credible witnesses that he was at work during the time of the murders. And there was absolutely nothing linking him to what happened. The detective over the case was actually quoted saying, I believe you, but that doesn't matter. Someone has to pay for the crimes. The trial was short, and before he knew it, the verdict was given. Anthony was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, and for 28 years, he sat on death row, waiting. Two years before, two years after uh, that 28-year prison sentence of, to murder and life on death row, he was exonerated because there was new forensic evidence that was given. He was set free, and after 30 years, the Supreme Court Justice of the U.S. let him free. They overturned the verdict. Imagine sitting in prison for 30 years as an innocent man, knowing that you were innocent. Well, I think hearing a story like that leads us to ask questions like, what, what in the world can we do in the face of injustice? Will the wrongs in this world ever be brought to justice? Will the wicked ever pay for their crimes? Will the innocent be vindicated? I want you to turn with me as we read Psalm 7. And Psalm 7 is a prayer for justice. So join with me as I read. The Shagayan of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Lord, my God, I seek refuge in you. Save me from all my pursuers and rescue me, where they will tear me apart like a lion, ripping me apart with no one to rescue me. Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice on my hands, if I have done harm to one at peace with me, or have plundered my adversary without cause, may an enemy pursue me and overtake me. May he trample me to the ground and leave my honor in the dust. Rise up, Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my adversaries. Awake for me. You have ordained a judgment. Let the assemblies of the people gather around you and take your seat on high over it. The Lord 
judges the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. The one who examines the thoughts and emotions is a a righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who shows his wrath every day. If anyone does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has strung his bow and made ready. He has prepared deadly weapons. He tips his arrow with fire. See, the wicked one is pregnant with evil, conceives trouble, and gives birth to deceit. He dug a pit and hollowed it out, but fell into the hole that he had made. His trouble comes back on his own head. His own violence comes down on top of his head. I will thank the Lord for his righteousness. I will sing about the name of the Lord Most High. Well, our psalm today is identified as an individual lament. And reading and studying these prayers of lament, as we have done even through the first uh, six chapters already here at OBC, it's important to know and to be reminded of what a psalm of lament is. And as one author says it, a psalm of lament is a prayer of pain that leads to praise. And that's exactly what we see here in Psalm chapter 7. So reading and studying these prayers are helpful because lament teaches us how to walk through the pain and trials that we face in this life while trusting in the Lord. So I think we should make a regular habit of visiting these psalms and and practicing and being able to lament as we see laid out in Scripture. And so to summarize the main idea of this psalm of lament, I think the main idea is this, that our cry for justice is heard by a righteous judge. That our cry for justice is heard by a righteous judge. And we see this really play out in, throughout the entire chapter, but we see this mainly in three ways, which leads to our outline for today. That first, we must run to God, our refuge. We really see this through verses 1 through 5. But then second, that we would trust the righteous judge. And we see this through verse 6 through 16. And finally, we see that we should worship the righteous Lord. And we see this at the end of the chapter in verse 17. So as we cry for justice, our, our, as we cry for justice, it is heard by a righteous judge And so we should run to him for refuge, trust the righteous judge, and worship the righteous Lord. As we read the beginning of the superscript or the title of 
this passage, we read that David's prayer of lament is a shagon of David concerning the words of Cush. Now, we have no idea what a shagion is, and it's honestly a little hard to say. Well, David, he doesn't go into detail about what it is in the psalm. He doesn't even explain to us who Cush is. We don't know who Cush is. What we do know is that David wrote this psalm, Psalm 7, concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Well, David cries out to the Lord because of what Cush is saying. So it must have been harsh. David's lament calls on God to rescue him from what these attacks are saying and for those who rescue him from those who are pursuing him. Well, if for a little bit of background of uh, the nation of Israel and what might lead us to explain a little bit about who Cush is, what we do know is that Cush was from the tribe of Benjamin, or as it says here, a Benjaminite. Now, we do know that he was from this tribe, and this is helpful context because we know that Israel's first king was named Saul. And Saul was from the same tribe. He was also a Benjaminite. Saul was anointed by God as Israel's first king. But eventually, as Saul reigned, his true character came out. And he began to turn away from God. So while Saul was still king, the prophet Samuel was instructed by God to anoint a new king, the next king. And this is King David who penned this psalm. So soon after David was anointed as the next king, Saul begins to become very jealous. And he actually sets out to kill David. Well, David, King King Saul was actually very unsuccessful. He did not kill David. But in this pursuit, David actually had several opportunities to kill Saul himself. We see one of these examples in 1 Samuel 24. But David did not kill Saul. But instead, in his pursuit, as he was so close, he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe and eventually shows it to him and says, look at how close I was. I could have killed you if I wanted to. This didn't deter Saul, but instead he still tried to kill David. Well, this Benjaminite tribe, they were proud to have Saul as their king and from their very own tribe. It might be kind of like someone in the presidency that's from a party that we affiliate with. We're proud of that. Well, you can begin to understand why they would have such animosity towards David, the new king. Even though David never laid a hand on King Saul, the new king of Israel, the the loyalists to Saul sought to discredit him and 
discredit David's authority and rule by attacking his good character. Who knew that so much could be packed in to a simple title and superscript? Well, amidst this smear campaign that David uh, is experiencing, David runs for refuge, which leads us to our first point, run to God for refuge. David cries out in verse 1 to my God. This is not just a cry into a wind. This is a personal cry of David to his covenant uh, covenant God, the one who he has a covenant relationship with. There are accusations that are swirling around. And these were not only from Cush, but they were also from David's pursuers, which we see also in verse 1. The accusations of things that David has not done. We don't know exactly what the accusations are. We have some hints of what they may be in verse 4. But David's character is being slandered. We might be tempted to call out David thinking that he needs to just get a little bit of thicker skin. He is king. Or maybe that we just want to tell him to man up. Don't worry about what your critics say. Just dismiss it. Well, this is slander, attacking David's good character. A good definition of slander is that it is a lie that damages a person's reputation. And that is what they're trying to do. They're trying to damage King David's reputation. It's serious and very destructive. Slander is hard to undo because once an accusation is out there, it's so hard to get the truth out after. So how do you prove that you didn't do something? How do you prove that you didn't do something that you're being accused of? Well, the book of Proverbs talks just about some of the dangers of slander, about lies. One of the things that it says in chapter 12, verse 6, is that lies wait for blood. That slander can separate close friends and even destroy neighbors. If you consider just the power of one lie in Genesis 3, when the serpent, the father of lies, deceived Adam and Eve, Asking, did God really say a lie, slander, can have serious effects? As one pastor says, all injustice begins with a lie. Well, we may not face such accusations that Paul did, but we do face lies in other ways. Maybe a relative says something about your character to make them feel better about themselves or their own shortcomings. Maybe a coworker takes credit for something that you did at work or something that you completed or worked on a project. We have all have ways that we have experienced injustice in this life. Is your first response 
to cry out and to run to God? Or do you seek to build your case, seeking to discredit others and do further damage? David knows that apart from God, there is no one to rescue him. And so he runs to God as his refuge. David is confident in his refuge. He knows that he can trust God to be his refuge because his hope is sure in him. If you read the first six chapters of Psalms, that you see that the blessed life, the blessed life, a life of a righteous man, is not exempt from experiencing pain or trials in this life. But in the pain, in the trials, we realize that we have not been left alone but that we have a refuge for our soul. So a safe refuge is not found in better circumstances or a life without pain. It is found in God. Nothing can rise up against you that God cannot handle. So in the midst of trouble, in the midst of pain, we all run somewhere for refuge. David is being pursued and feels like he's being hunted like a lion. Verse 2, it says, Or they will tear me apart, ripping me like a ripping me apart with no one to rescue me. David seeks refuge because he knows that his pursuers can do him great harm. David has come face to face with lions before. In 1 Samuel 17. We see that he had faced lions and that he, when he was in the field tending his father's sheep and a lion took one off. David, like any good shepherd, what does he do? He goes after it. David is no stranger to threats. David is no stranger to danger. We may struggle to relate to David's particular threat, but in 1 Peter 5, we learn that we actually have a greater threat. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be alert because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, lion looking for anyone that he can devour. So where do you run in times of trouble? Any refuge that looks outside of God, that we look to outside of God, is temporary and fleeting. When you're in trouble, do you run to friends or maybe family hoping that they can solve your problems? Do you run to entertainment, hoping to distract yourself from the pain that you may face? Do you run to substance, trying, to, trying your best to numb the pain? Are you tempted to run to food or sex or fighting pain with pleasure? None of these can provide the refuge that we seek because misplaced hope will only add to the trouble that you are already experiencing. And outside of God, the things that we often run to for refuge, in the end, they will devour us because God is the only true refuge for our souls. He reigns everywhere 
that your trouble is. Only he has the power to rescue you and to deliver you. God is the only safe refuge for refugees. So where do you run? David knows that he, this is, David knows this is, this so he flees to, flees, he runs to God and pleads his case as his refuge. David declares his innocence in verses 3 to 5, and he gives us these if-then statements. And David is basically saying that he wants his day in court. And the reality is, if anyone has ever been to court and has ever been, been, been guilty, if you are guilty, that is the last place that you want to be. But David runs to God. David is swearing an oath to God. If I am not telling the truth, then let my enemies overtake me. His protest of innocence is convincing because he gives his enemies permission to take his life if he is guilty. David is confident in his innocence and he's willing to accept the penalty if he has done any wrong. So this why is this? Because God is the righteous judge who we can trust when we face injustice. Which brings us to our second point. Trust the righteous God. In verse 6 through 16, it shows us that God is not only the, the judge over David, but he is the judge over all peoples. In verse 8. David cries out to the Lord to rise up in verse 6, and he takes his place as the righteous judge. This is a theme that we see throughout the book of Psalms. But here, David moves from declaring his innocence to calling on God to act. In one of the most urgent tones that we see, he says, judge the wicked and establish the righteous in verse 9. The language here carries with it both military and judicial action and imagery. David wants to see God take action. And like us in our suffering, David feels like God is not moving fast enough. He says, awake, for you have already ordained this. Well, we know that God does not sleep or slumber, but in David's anxiety in his in his weakness he is crying out to God to do something and just as David reminds God of their covenant relationship in verse 1 he reminds God that he is also promised to judge David doesn't want to adjourn for another day he doesn't want to push the case back just the opposite David wants God to take his seat among the peoples and vindicate him. We see that in verse 8. David wants God to bring judgment and govern the people because he knows that God is a righteous judge, a judge that will rule and will judge the wicked and establish the righteous. We want to see justice served just 
We want to see justice serve for those who are wicked. Well, a more closer to home example, us as parents, what do we have when our kids are maybe fighting and they run to mom or dad? What are they seeking to do for the, the one that is in the wrong? They want us to execute justice. They want to see their brother or sister pay for the crimes that they have committed against them, right? Some of the kids in here are giving nods. We all want justice. This is human nature. We see this as parents and our own children when they have even been treated unfairly or when children are bullied at school or mistreated. They run to their parents or to principals. They run there for refuge. They want protection and they want to see the one who has wronged them be punished. Just as children run to their parents, David cries out to God, the righteous judge, who will judge the righteous and the unrighteous. And we really even see this in a subpoint of this point, that God examines the heart, hearts of men. And we see this in verses 8 and 9. Well, David cries out that the Lord would vindicate him according to his righteousness. We often struggle to know, to know what to make of the psalm when he claims to be righteous because we know that David was not always righteous, that he had his own sin issues. When he says, vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity in verses 8, in verse 8, David knows that his righteousness is found wanting. He knows that he is a sinner. But in this instance, which I think that David is talking about, when he says, vindicate me according to my righteousness, he's thinking about this instance. So while David begins this psalm focusing on his own situation and asking God to judge him, he actually moves forward by asking God to judge his adversaries. David Trust God, the judge, the righteous judge. He trusts him to judge those who have slandered him because he knows that he will also judge all people. And as the king, David could have easily taken justice into his own hands. But he doesn't. He appeals to the righteous judge, knowing that God sees the very thoughts and the very emotions of every person. You know, it's estimated in America that the justice system has between 4 and 6% of wrongful convictions, which is really seems low, but honestly, that's a staggering number. This means that with a prison population of over 1 million in America, that there may be up to 60,000 innocent people serving time for crimes that they didn't commit. We heard of one example of Anthony Hinton earlier. But unlike the wrong conviction of Mr. Hinton, God never pronounces a wrong verdict. And we can trust that God will justly 
judge every person. There will never be a mistrial. We will never have to worry about someone bearing false witness or that new evidence will come to light. Why? Because God's justice is perfect. And because he is all-knowing. He knows our very thoughts, our emotions, our actions, and our motives. By verse 9, David finished crying out to God right in the middle. And he says that David knows that God cannot be fooled by our secrets. We actually read in Romans 2.16, it says God will judge what people have kept secret. And to convict someone who is guilty, there must be evidence. There must be an eyewitness or a video, something that condemns them. Well, God does not rely on those things. God, he can see our very thoughts and our emotions. David's exhibit A to God is that he pleads his own heart. David holds nothing back because he knows nothing can be hidden from the righteous judge. Hebrews 4.13 says that he is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Verse 13, it says, No one, no creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who give an account. David has asked God to search his heart, but he doesn't stop there. He trusts the righteous God to take that and to act in justice. See, everything has been laid bare before God's eyes. The hearts of every man, the the minds of every person will be put on trial. And God will actively pursue justice. You see, David, his hope is not just for personal justice, but he looks beyond that and goes global. David knows that God will act in justice, not only in his particular situation, but he will judge justly over all people. His prayer does not only stay focused on the injustice that he has experienced, but our righteous judge saves all who are upright in heart. And shows his wrath to all who are wicked. You see, David tells us in verse 12 and 13 that our righteous God, well, his sword of justice is sharp. His bow is ready. So the question for us today is what will shield you from God's sword and bow? Well, The good news of the gospel is that Christ's death and through Christ's death and resurrection, he will shield us. Romans 3.23 says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our sin separates us from a perfect and holy God. We even talked about that in our catechism. And because of our sin, we deserve God's sword of judgment. But God showed his love by sending Jesus, his only son, to live the righteous life 
that we did not. And Jesus lived in perfect obedience to God's law, fulfilling it perfectly. But like David, Jesus was falsely accused and slandered by men. But Jesus did not receive a fair trial. Jesus was punished and handed over to be crucified for crimes that he did not commit. In 1 Peter 2.22, it says, He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So the sentence for Christ was death on a cross. There his body was torn. He was trampled and spit on. His honor was left in the dust. And just as David feared in verse 2, yet in all the injustice that Jesus faced, he did not open his mouth to defend himself but he remained silent as if he were the one that was truly guilty. And like a lamb led to the slaughter, he suffered in his flesh. And he died the death that you and I deserve for our sin. But praise be to God that he did not stay dead, but he rose from the grave conquering sin and death. And this is the good news of the gospel, that now through Jesus' death and his resurrection, sinners are able to be forgiven of their sin. And through repentance and faith, sinners can be declared justified and saved. This is good news. Praise be to God that Christ fully satisfied the wrath of God. So that through Christ, we who confess our sins and believe in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we have found a perfect refuge for our soul. You see, Jesus' death on the cross, it was the single greatest display of human injustice in all of history. Yet, it is also the greatest display of God's justice. So if you have not trusted in Christ, I implore you to repent and run to God as your refuge. If you have questions about what that looks like, myself or Trey or anyone that may you have come here with that knows Christ would be glad to have that conversation with you. And please do that before you leave. Don't delay. And praise God because of Christ's righteousness, those who take their, their refuge in Christ have a sure and steady shield that we see in verse 10. And praise God that he has vindicated us on, not on the basis of our own righteousness, but through the righteousness of Christ. And this, this, brothers and and sisters, leads us to our last point, that we should worship God in confidence. 
David says, I will thank the Lord for his righteousness. I will sing about the name of the Lord most high. David's prayer of lament ends in praising the righteous judge. David's confidence is not in himself, not in what he could do, not in his position. His confidence is in the Lord who reigns on high. He has confidence because the Lord has heard his cries. And for those who are in Christ, their sins are forgiven. And in Christ, they will be declared innocent. And this is why David ends in worship, in worshiping the risen Lord because he has been declared innocent. Because Christ, they will be considered righteous before a holy judge. And God has vindicated the innocent and judges the wicked and the motives. And this leads David to praise God. You see, David ends this psalm with worship because he has great confidence in his God. He knows that God is righteous, God's righteousness is greater than the wickedness of all of his enemies. He knows that God's righteousness is greater than all the wickedness that he's facing. And we can hold fast to that truth as well. So in our affliction, when we, we are slandered, we have hope, not in ourselves, but in Christ. He is greater than the wickedness of this world. So worship him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we give you praise because you are our refuge, our very present help in times of trouble. But we find great comfort that you are a perfect and righteous judge. We praise you because you do not, you do hear our cries. And as a perfect and righteous judge, you have responded. Lord, we pray that you would give us the humility to repent of our pride that separates us from you. And Lord, we long for your return, that in your perfect righteousness, you will make all all the wrongs right. And that you would take all the injustices that we see and that we face, and that, Lord, that you would bring perfect justice. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.